0: Now, unrivaled has been this series through the book of Colossians, and this is the twelfth week of it. And we're actually going to finish the book of Colossians—the first book we've gone through as a church—and it's a pretty rad experience. Colossians really has transformed my life personally, and I hope that as you've shared with us in this series, if you've been here, I hope that you've enjoyed it. Anybody enjoyed the unrivaled series so far? Anybody having a good time in that? Fantastic. Well. I don't know if maybe you bought your mom a gift card for Mother's Day. It is a trend. You know, it's convenient. Nothing wrong with that. Just buying a gift card a little easier than, and just better than not getting her anything at all, I suppose. But maybe you bought your mom a gift card this year. Now, I was pleased to discover that a lot of the local shops even do gift cards too. You you can get a handwritten gift card. Get some Pips Original Donuts, maybe a little salt and straw either way let me just say, if you did that, go with your mom to the shop. You know, spending time with her, that's what she's really looking for. That's what she's excited about. Go with her out to get some ice cream for, for heaven's sake. But if you did buy a gift card, there's something interesting about that phenomenon, and that's that every year, between six and 10 percent of gift cards are never used. They're never spent. And that means that every year in the United States alone, there's about a billion dollars that is spent on gift cards that goes to waste, that just disappears, that gets lost into a purse, tucked into a junk drawer, and there goes the money. You know, in the past, uh, in the past like, eight or so years, since 2008 there's been $44 billion that has disappeared through gift cards just uh, throughout the world as a whole. And it's pretty tremendous the way that goes to waste. And when that happens, they call that breakage. Can everybody say that with me? Breakage. Breakage. And it sounds like garbage because the person who bought the gift might as well have just thrown their money away in the garbage. (laughs) Might as well. If somebody buys you a gift card, you might as well use it. You should seize that opportunity. Well, this text here in Colossians says exactly that. It says, it says to cash in on every opportunity, to redeem, to buy up, to eliminate the breakage, to stop the waste. Now, the message of Colossians is, I've said it every week, that Jesus is king of the ring. That he's unrivaled in the universe. That this Jesus, this, this carpenter that we're always talking about, that he wasn't just a man, but that he was creator God. And that if he's unrivaled in reality, Paul would write to us and he would say he should be unrivaled in our mentality. That he should be unrivaled in our thinking. That he should be unrivaled in our parenting. That he should be unrivaled in our marrying. Unrivaled in our working. But today, we're going to say that Jesus should be unrivaled in our praying and unrivaled in our preaching, in our speaking. So we're going to talk about this thing, evangelism. And some people immediately get uncomfortable just with the mention of that word. It makes some people feel kind of, you know, not at ease, maybe because you've seen a bad portrayal of that. Or maybe you've heard a message that was very heavy on the guilt. But you know what? I want us to make this transition today from obligation to opportunity. From obligation to opportunity. And that's really the essence of maturing as a Christian. I've found in my life, the way Christianity progresses is you start off in this place where you're going, I have to. I have to. You know, I have to go to church. I have to do this. I have to obey God. But you know what? As you begin to meet Jesus, you begin to discover who he is. You begin to see, you know, your own shortcomings, your own failures, your own sins. As you begin to grow, you've got to move out of I have to. Where do you end up? You end up in I need to. I need Jesus. I need God's forgiveness. I need God's grace. I need a community. I need some people in my life. But you know, but you don't have to stop there. That's really the motion from religion to real salvation is moving from I have to to I need to. But, you know, you don't have to stop there. You can go from I have to, to I need to, to I want to. To I want to, till I can't wait to get with God's people. I can't wait to sing God's praises. I can't wait to tell other people about this Jesus who's unrivaled in my heart. But you know what? There's even something further beyond that. You can go from, I have to, to I need to, to I want to, to I cannot believe I get to. It's a privilege. It's an opportunity. It's not an obligation. It's a joy, not a chore. That's what maturity as a Christian looks like. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Salvation is a gift. And our participation is a gift. Participating in what God's doing, taking part through prayer, speaking to him. Taking part through evangelism, talking to other people. That's an opportunity we get to enter into. It's a privilege we partake in. It's for our good that God gets us in the game. So the question set before us today is how much breakage is there going to be? How much of that gift of participation is going to slip through our fingers? How many opportunities are we going to walk past? If God has given us the gift, the grace of joining with him in his mission to save sinners, how much of that gift are we going to miss out on? Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that we would have that shift in our hearts. We'd have that shift in our thinking, that we would transition from obligation to opportunity. I pray that you'd speak to us this morning. You'd refresh hearts, revive hearts, and that maybe if people don't know you, Lord, they would meet you for the first time, that you would rescue hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to just crush out the final verses of Colossians. And we'll have the verses up on the screen for you. Because maybe you don't own a Bible. Maybe you you, you can always download one on your phone. But because we're a church that wants to welcome outsiders, we always like to put the verses on the screen for you. So check this out. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim The mystery of Christ, for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. And everybody say this with me. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace. seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you the news about me. He's a dear brother a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know our circumstances, that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful dear brother who's one of you. They will tell you everything that's happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings. So does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends his greetings always, wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our friend Luke the doctor and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see to it that you also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my Chains. Grace be with you. Hey, we did it. We just finished a book of the Bible. If you've never read a book of the Bible, but you've been with us for the Colossians series, you have finished a book of the Bible right there. It's cool. It's exciting. I like the word enthusiastic church, all right? Because I know it ain't just a front. I know it's not fake. I mean, I'm kind of an enthusiastic guy. And so if I'm going to have a church, it's going to be an exciting one. First thought this morning is look up. Look up. He says to hold fast in prayer, to continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, I've heard some messages on prayer that are kind of heaped on the guilt. You know, they've been a little heavy on that side, like, have you been missing the hour of power? It's like, Seven days without prayer makes one week. You, know? you hear those messages and they just go to town on you, just, just telling you how, how you ought to pray more and how bad you are for not praying. But has anybody else discovered that grace is a much stronger motivator than guilt? That God's kindness, that God's mercy, that knowing his heart, knowing his character motivates you a lot more to want to talk to him than somebody getting up in your grill and up in your face? I sure found that. And I've found that to be the tone of the scriptures. Jesus says this in the book of Matthew. He says, keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep on knocking. Because everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks, to him the door will be opened. He says, you parents, if any one of your children asks for a loaf of bread, you give them a stone instead. If they ask for a fish, are you gonna give them a snake, a rattler? <laughs> of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? First of all, this is hilarious. And sometimes when we approach the Bible, we put these like serious, scholarly, devout, like priestly goggles on, and we get we think nothing's funny. you know, that's inaccurate. I've got this book called The Humor of Christ by Elton Trueblood. And he talks about how huge amounts of what Jesus said was actually ironic, sarcastic. It would have made people roll their eyes in their culture. It would have made them laugh audibly. And I think this is one of the funniest passages in the Gospels. He's like, hey, who of you, when your kid comes up to you and they're like, hey, can I have a birthday party? You're like, yeah, you can have a birthday party, but I'm going to put broken glass inside of the birthday cake. (laughs) It's like... Oh my gosh, somebody called child services. (laughs) Sick. It's like, of course you don't do that. And your father in heaven's not that way either. He's not a prankster. He's not like putting pit vipers in your lasagna. He doesn't roll that way. It's funny. This is some black comedy right here, but what's the message? The message Jesus is getting at is that God's not a miser. God isn't a tightwad. He's eager to answer. He's waiting for your call. He longs to lavish your life with good things because he's a good father. Of course God wants to bless you. The question is, are you blessable? Are you blessable? Is your heart in a position where you can access the things he's always wanted for you? And so that's what prayer does. It puts you in that kind of a position. You know, I try on a regular basis to tell you reasons why I'm a Christian. That's part of why we named the church that. I try to tell you reasons for the faith. And oftentimes those are historical. Oftentimes the reasons I give you are philosophical. They're hopefully logical. They're hopefully a little bit intellectual. They get you thinking that way. But you know, some of the reasons why I'm a Christian are deeply personal. They're individual. And some of that's just the fact that I have seen God answer my prayers in ways that are unmistakable. I really have. I'll give you an example. It's a very specific example. When I was living in Albuquerque, I was a youth pastor. And that is not exactly a lucrative gig, all right? If you, like, want to, you know, get those fat stacks, you want to, you know, get up to the top just to enjoy the views. Anybody know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. You got that. It's good I I don't live in a monastery. I've I've heard of Drake. I have. Just once. Only one time. Only one time. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't exactly rolling in the dough there. And uh, we were having some serious automobile problems, all right? And I remember a specific day. It was September 28th, 2014. I was driving my car down the road, and, and like, this was like practically a lawnmower, all right? You had to like crank it up to start it. It was like a go-kart. You know, there were so many problems with it. The AC quit working. Uh, when, you, when you pumped gas into it, you had to like throttle the vehicle to get it to start, and you'd have to like jet out of the parking lot because if you slowed down, it would stop. So I'm running down old ladies, little babies, dangerous. But I was on my way to get some coffee as I was preparing to study for a message. And uh, you'll have to pardon me. Everybody has to be basic sometimes. I was going to Starbucks. All right, I'll be honest. You know, I, I wish that I was hitting up Cova or, you know, Barista or something like that. They've got that in Albuquerque. So I'm headed to Starbucks. And I'm getting stressed because God has already put a deep sense on my heart that we're supposed to plant a church in Portland, Oregon. And that's been impressed on us so much. Things are in the works, but we haven't really told anybody this at this point. But I'm driving to Starbucks, getting ready to prepare a message for the youth group. And I just think to myself, I'm like, how on earth are we ever going to go do this? There's so many difficulties, the finances, everything's frustrating. I don't even know if this car could drive us there, drive us across the country. And then I go get my coffee, I go back to my house, and I start studying. And I'm studying a passage in Mark that's all about God's provision. And all about how God provides. And then sometimes we forget the way that He provides, and so He does it again. And you could read it, it's Mark chapter 8. I'm studying that, and I just like am like so convicted. Like, Lord, you do provide. You're gonna come through. You're gonna take care of us. That's what you do, that's who you are. If I live my life on mission, I can count on your provision. If I'm if I'm praying for your kingdom to come, you will come through. I'm thinking those thoughts. And I actually throw out a tweet and says this: worried, anxious, don't fear. The bread of heaven who fed you yesterday, won't let you go hungry today. I just throw that out on Twitter, just trying to encourage somebody else. An hour later, without any collusion, without any like backdoor planning, without talking to anybody, on September 28th, 2014, the very day I drove to that Starbucks, we get a call from some loved ones who say, hey, we're coming to pick up your car. We're going to take it we're going to buy you a new car this very day. That drive to Starbucks was the last time I ever saw that vehicle. They bought us a brand new car, and it is the car that carried me from Albuquerque to Portland to start this church and tell you about Jesus. This ballroom is an answer to prayer. Okay, I I won't go into too much elaborate detail, but we prayed in a small group. We didn't know where this church was going to meet. So this past fall, we prayed in our small group that God would come through with a venue. And the next day, I looked at two hideous, ugly venues, hung my head in defeat outside of them, and then looked on my phone as there was a contract from Bossa Nova waiting in my inbox. All right, this place is an answer to prayer. Can we celebrate that? That may not prove to you that God exists, But for me, I've seen so much, so many instances that I can't help but trust him. I can't help but believe in him. It's not just the universe, okay? He's not a force. He's a father. And he hears your prayers. He's a person. He's personal. Epaphras knew what prayer was all about. We read in verse 12. It says that Epaphras, who's one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature, and fully assured. That's how we ought to pray. We ought to pray for the will of God. You see, prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes you. Prayer aligns your will with God's will so you can welcome the things he's always wanted for you. Prayer aligns your will with God's will so you can welcome the things he's always wanted for him. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So we want to look up. We want to be a church that prays. We want Reason Church to be known as a a place where its people pray. Next thing is we want to speak up. Speak up. Paul says, pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Man, if, if Colossians had like that author's photo on the back of the book, you know, and sometimes they ham up real nice for those pictures. Some of the authors just go big. They're like, I'm going to put a gigantic selfie on the front cover of my book. Then people will buy it. But if Paul had a picture of him in the book, he'd be like in the clank, <laughs> all right? He'd be like in behind prison bars. This guy like in San Quentin, all right? He's writing from prison. Why do I tell you that? Because it's astonishing. When Jesus is unrivaled in your heart, it gives you the power to march through to face anything. There he is in prison, but he's not all obsessed with himself, not all absorbed with his own problems. He's going to keep preaching the same message that got him in lockup in the first place. This is why he was arrested. It's tremendous. It changed the first century. It can change our city. This message can. Grace can make you so free on the inside doesn't matter what you're facing on the outside. That's what grace does and did it for Paul. But he says, pray that I would proclaim it clearly as I should. But then he turns it back on us. He turns it back on the Colossian Christians. He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. We live in a day and age where religion is relegated to be something private, something personal, something that is not intended to be in the public square. And people say, you know, all religions are equally valid. You cannot impose your views on anybody else. You cannot tell anyone else what to believe. And I've told you before, what's the Christian's response? You go, okay, okay, I believe you. <laughs> because when people put forward that view of religion, that all religions equal, that every view is the same, that's a view of religion. That's called religious pluralism. And everybody, ultimately, at the end of the day, is exclusive. Having a view that all religions are the same, that all roads lead to God, that all roads are equal, that's a view. And to say that nobody else can talk about Jesus, nobody else can talk about that view, that's just as intolerant as anything else. But here's the thing, here's the kicker. I think I know why people sometimes feel that way. I know why talking about other faith and talking about really believing that Jesus Christ is the one true God, I know why that can be offensive. And that's because people don't always apply what Paul says right here in this text. They don't always speak with grace. They don't always speak with gentleness. They don't always speak with compassion or humility. He says, be wise in the way you speak toward outsiders. Anybody know that as Christians, when we do evangelism, it's something we propose, not impose? Does anybody know that you cannot come to Christ By force, you have to come to Christ by faith. You can't force anybody. You can't force your kids to to believe it. You can't force your neighbor. You can't force anybody. But you can propose it. And you can be be, uh, honest and open enough to be real with people about it. Notice how he says, pray that a door opens for me pray that a door opens for me. You know what some people do? They don't pray for a door to open for them to make known the message. They get the SWAT team going on. They put some like explosives on the door. They blow the door open. They come in with guns blazing, telling everybody like, you better repent. You better believe you're going to hell. You know, just getting nuts. But what what does he say? He says, hey, hey, pray that a door would open for me. He says, be wise. Think about the way you're acting towards outsiders. I'd say, think about how how what you're saying makes them feel. Think about how what you're saying, you know, the the way it's coming across. Is it coming across as prideful? Is it coming across as arrogant? Is it coming across as self-righteous? Hey, try this verse on for size. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 25. What if every Christian approached evangelism like this? A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility. Can everybody say that word with me? Humility. Correcting those who are in opposition. If God will perhaps grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. You know, pride is spiritual kryptonite. It is spiritual kryptonite. And to preach a gospel of grace in a prideful way is to preach nonverbal heresy. Nonverbal heresy. You're not even preaching the gospel if you're doing it in a prideful way. Because grace is a gift. And you can't be prideful about a gift. A gift is something you receive, not something you achieve. And when you propose that gift to other people, you talk to people about the hope that you have in Jesus, you must do it in a humble way. You now the vast majority of people, the vast majority of people who do not believe Christianity have radically inaccurate views about what it teaches. The vast majority of people who do not believe Christianity have radically inaccurate views about what it teaches. We talk about this all the time. Most people think that Christianity is a system of achievement. It's a system of making yourself better. It's a, it's a code of conduct. I've talked to people on the streets all the time. I talk to baristas, and I talk to gas station attendants. I talk to friends of mine who aren't Christians. And most people think that all Christianity is, is rules to live by. Want to know what your opportunity is? It's your opportunity in humility, in gentleness, in grace to tell me, no, man, it's a reason to live for. It ain't just rules to live by. I'm not saved by how good I've been. I'm saved by whom I trust is in. That's the essence of our message. Most people do not understand that salvation is a gift. They think it's just rules and restrictions to make yourself a good person so that you can get to heaven one day, so you can get to God, and you can judge everybody along the way. And that's not right, and we get the chance to clear up the bad intel We get the chance to tell people that there's hope, that there's hope beyond the grave, that there's a reason to live for. You know, something else I like about this text, he says that you may know how to answer each one. There's two thoughts there. That there isn't just this, like, cookie-cutter approach to every conversation. You know, the different relationships, that the relationships you have at your workplace, the way you talk to one person isn't going to be the same. And I also like the fact that you can let people know you can let people know that there are answers to their questions, that their doubts are okay, that their skepticism it can be dealt with, that there are, we're willing to have a conversation, and that's what Reason Church is all about. Now we've said throughout this entire series that Jesus is King of the Ring, that Jesus is meant to be unrivaled in our hearts. In Colossians 1:18 puts it like this. It says this, that in all things, Jesus might have the supremacy. That in all things, Jesus might have the supremacy. Uh Uh-oh. Thank you, Sam. We're about to get a little intergalactic, planetary, planetary, intergalactic, right? The essence of Colossians has been this. Wait, this just gets better and better, by the way. It just gets better and better. Oh my goodness, no he didn't. (laughs) It's fantastic. So what's going on here? What am I trying to visualize, trying to illustrate for you? It's essentially this. Colossians has been saying that everybody puts something at the center of their life. At the center of everyone's solar system is something. And some people put their career at the center of their solar system. Some people put a romance at the center of their solar system. Some people put a job or they put, uh, you know, just the desire to have pleasure, to have adventure, to go on vacations. They put good things at the center of their solar system. But I've told you this, when you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. And if you put something that does not have the gravitational pull to sustain your world at the center of your universe, things are always going to be in a state of imbalance. They're always going to be in a state of chaos. Your job cannot sustain your family. Your family can't sustain your job. Your spouse can't sustain your whole world. Everything's always going to be flying apart. But if you put Jesus at the center, things will fall into balance. You don't have to get rid of vacation. You don't have to get rid of romance. You don't have to get rid of these things. You just put them in orbit around the one who can hold everything together because he upholds the world together. Well, i got one more thought about this. That's this. Speaking up, when Jesus is at the center, it's going to be more and more natural to talk about him. People who are passionate about that relationship, they talk about it, don't they? People who who are passionate about a certain situation, they talk about it. You know, evangelism, speaking up about Jesus, the more he's at the center, the more it's going to be overspill, not effort. The more you think of him, the more you'll talk of him. The more you ponder him, the more you'll proclaim him. The more you treasure him, the more you're going to transmit him. But Jesus said this. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its flavor, how will it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nobody lights a lamp or puts it under a bowl. But they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to everyone in the house. You may feel nervous about talking about Jesus. You may feel nervous about speaking up about him. But you know what? If Jesus really is at the center of your life... No, no, you can... You, I'm going to hold on to that just for one more second. Thank you, Thank you Samuel. Thanks, man. <laughs> just one more second. Here's the thing. If Jesus really is the center of your world... If he's the thing that everything's orbiting around, if he's the thing that's sustaining everything, you know what it is to never talk about Jesus? It's to do that. If all you do is talk about movies, and all you ever do is talk about romance, and all you ever do is talk about your job, and all you ever do is... Spider-Man, right? That's what it is to do. It's to put a bowl over the center of your life. So all you're doing when you're talking about Jesus, is you're being real. You're being honest. You're being real about what your world revolves around. All right, Sam, you could go ahead and dig that now. Thanks so much, man. Can we give Sam a hand? I read a study. I read a study from LifeWay Research that said... of unchurched respondents said they would come to church this weekend if they were invited by a close friend or a family member. 67% of unchurched people said they would come to church this weekend if they were invited by a family member. When you think about speaking up about Jesus at your workplace, it might terrify you. When you think about speaking up about Jesus to your friends, it might terrify you. When you think about speaking up about Jesus to your, your, your family members who don't know him, that might terrify you. You might ask this question, well, what if it does nothing? I want to ask you a different question. What if it changes everything? What if it changes everything? What if they've just been looking for hope? What if they didn't know what they were looking for, but they were looking for something? Think about that. 67%. You know, sometimes they might not like it. What about that one time when it just changes the game? Got one final thought on this topic, and then we'll move to our our last point. We'll kind of talk about those listed names. We're talking about breakage, right? We're talking about opportunities. We're talking about not letting those opportunities slip by, not letting the gift of participation go to waste. You know that there's been a lot of actors who've been offered roles and they've passed on them later to regret it? You know that Sean Connery was offered the role of Gandalf, but he thought, ah, no, that movie's not going to do anything. That movie's not going to go anywhere, and he passed it by. <laughs> and I think he maybe lived to regret that. You know, John Cusack turned down the role of Walter White because he thought, this show's weird. I don't know, Albuquerque, New Mexico, what's that all about? Turned down that role. You know that Will Smith turned down the role of Neo and he could have been in the Matrix. He could have been in that entire franchise. I think, uh, I think uh, that may, might have been a good call. Might have, that made a little bit of buku bucks, right? Made a little bit of money. Tom Selleck, this is my favorite one, passed up the role of Indiana Jones. <laughs> and I'm kind of glad he did. That mustache would not have, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I, I could have rolled with the Magnum P.I. Thing going on there. God has a part for you to play in somebody's story. He has a part for you to play in somebody's story. Don't pass it by. Don't pass it by. Now, what about this whole list of names there at the end? That whole list of names is kind of odd, isn't it? It's like, you know, we read through it. And even as I was reading it, maybe some of you are getting bored. Maybe you're checking out your Snap. Maybe you're like on Instagram, like, ah, oh, what is this list of names? And when I was younger, I used to always skip through those list of names. But there's three reasons why I really, really appreciate that passage. And here's this. As big as Paul was, as legendary as Paul was, as tremendous as his life is, as historians talk about how he changed human history, Paul knew that to walk in his calling, it would take a community. He had a squad of guys. You know, behind every Paul, there's a Tychicus, there's an Aristarchus, there's an Epaphras, And if you want to walk in your calling, if you want to live up to what God has called you to be, you want to live out your potential. You want to enter into the opportunities that He has for you. If you want to be a part of those kinds of things, it's going to take a squad. It's going to take people who have your back. And that's why you can look around this room. Look around, look around, look around. We need to have each other's back. We need to sink our roots in here. You know, sometimes when you hear that alarm on Sunday morning, you might be like, you know what, let's just go to brunch this week. Let's bail on church. But you know what? You're never going to get to that place where you have people laboring for you in prayer. You're never going to have people who who are are thinking about you throughout the week, calling you up, texting you up. People who would be willing to cross the entire Roman Empire to come visit you in a jail cell. You're never going to develop those kinds of relationships unless you sink in your roots here At church. Henry David Thoreau said that the masses of men lead lives of quiet desperation. The masses of men lead lives of quiet desperation. You may be nervous about entering into your role, you may be nervous about speaking up, you may be nervous about doing these sorts of things. But you know what? I think that. Hope is a commodity people are looking for. I think people in this city could use some good news. I think there are people who are tired. Yeah, you could, you could definitely celebrate. Why don't we just stand to our feet together? Why don't we just stand up right now as we shut this thing down? We're going to go out and have our Mother's Day brunch. Get on out of this place. There are people who are looking for exactly what you have on your lips. There are people waiting to hear the message you have for them. And so what if we committed as a church that we wanted to be outward-minded and on mission? What if we committed as a church, you know, that we're going to take that risk. We're going to step out and just say, you know what, I'm not going to be prideful because that's heresy. I'm not going to be harsh and arrogant and self-righteous and demeaning because that's not even the gospel anyways. But I'm going to be gentle and I'm going to be bold enough to walk through those open doors, to play my part and not let that role slip by, to not let the gift of participation go to waste. We want to look up, we want to speak up, and we want to link up. Why? So that we won't miss out. Father, I pray that we have that shift. I pray that we'd be people willing to invite that friend, willing to bring that buddy. Because there's somebody in the city who's hurting. There's somebody in in somebody's uh, workspace, somebody's family, a, a close friend. They've been nervous to talk about Jesus, but maybe that person, they're about to throw in the towel. Maybe they're letting their life orbit around their career and and everything's crumbling. They're letting, they put that romance at the center of their life. Their life's falling apart. Lord, I pray that those people would find hope because of the people who are in this house. That they'd find a reason to live for because people were willing to let the name of Jesus come out of their lips.